Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our sermon today is called A Faithful Pursuit of God's Glory. I forgot to put faithful when we put it on the, on the handout this morning, but a faithful pursuit of God's glory. Um, this week, me and Justin had uh, some time up in New York. We got to go hang out with some church planners uh, and hang out with some fellow church planners from South Carolina and the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Uh, and it was a good time. We got to go meet different churches in different boroughs and find out what they're doing, hear some of their stories, um, get some ideals about what we would like to possibly uh, do in the future. And it was a great time, but I realized New Yorkers had a problem. They had, well, besides, New Yorkers really have a problem. If you lived there before, it's, yeah, not the place to live. But they had a problem. Everybody was running the rat race. Now, New York is known for its rats, and we did sewer, sewer rat. But that is not what I mean when I say they have a rat race problem. A rat race is the uh, idiom that basically talks about this endless and self-defeating, pointless pursuit. Running over and over in vain, pursuing something but never fully grasping it. It's this competitive nature, this on-edge run to, if I get this thing, it's going to satisfy me. When we were in New York, we just saw that. that was, it was almost in the culture. You just felt it the whole time. Everybody's in a rush to get somewhere. Everybody's trying to get to the next thing, but they're distracted, and it feels unsatisfied, and they're always upset. Now, if I can be honest, I don't think that's just a New Yorkian problem. I think we have the same problem. We also find ourselves running in this rat race, pursuing endless, useless things that truly don't satisfy. We're often always pursuing and often distracted. I asked you this morning, what are you pursuing? What are you looking to to find full satisfaction today? What is your job? Is it school? Is it relationships? It, what are you pursuing in this season? Is it satisfying you? This week, as we dive into our text, we will be getting to what is the crescendo of what Paul has been talking about over the past three, two chapters, where he's been talking about dying to idolatry so that we can glorify God and serve others and show others him. In chapter 8, we saw where Paul said, pastorally, let's talk about those things you were asking about what does it mean about food sacrificed to idols? Paul was like, well, you can eat whatever you want to eat, but if you know it's sacrificed to idols, you know it's useless, and it can be a stumbling block for your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And then last week, Justin took us through chapter 9 where Paul talks about how he also is an example of what it means to die to himself for the sake of others. Not taking a salary as an apostle, even though he had the full right to take a salary, but because of the sake of the gospel, he was so concerned about what the gospel represented that he was willing to lay down his rights to a salary. And this week, we see the crescendo of what does it mean for us to lay down our rights and why should we lay down our rights? And at the end of the day, it points fully to because we're pursuing God's glory. As we walk through our text, it's going to kind of fall out. We're going to see this rolling of three aspects of how we pursue God's glory and walk out this faithful life. There is a personal aspect, meaning how do we ourselves live faithfully in the face of God after seeing God's hands at work, knowing that our life will be an example there's a communal aspect of how we live out our faith, meaning when we come to the communion table, how we hold one another accountable, eating of the communion table with pure hearts and pure hands, unlike falsely eating from the table of demons, which means, we'll see in a few minutes, that means that you can't eat of the communion table and also be lying and hating your brothers or doing anything that will harm your brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, we see this missional aspect of our faith. What does it mean to live our life in such a way that other people examine our lives and want to follow Christ themselves as we imitate in the, in the image of what Paul has laid out, not because he is perfect, but because he follows a perfect Savior. So as we dive in, look at verses 1 through 13 with me. He, Paul starts off, he says, Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the spirit, same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that and that Christ and that rock was Christ. So what Paul is laying out in these first four verses is that all were present. Israel in the Old Testament during the Exodus narrative, they all saw God's hands at work. They saw how he brought the plagues upon Egypt to break their bondage. They saw how God split the Red Sea and carried them through. They saw the cloud, of, the, the cloud behind them and the pillar of fire in front of them. They all saw these things. They saw how God took care of them. They saw how God provided for their needs. All these things they saw, and yet not all of them lived faithfully family, uh, these first four voice verses just points out the fact that we can all see God's hands at work in his church, in our life. If we were to look back over our life, we can account for the times God has shown up. Yet, even with all of these things, we can still be found unfaithful. If you were to take an assessment of your life today, and if you were to see God's fingerprints all over your life, what would keep you from living unfaithfully in his presence? What would keep you from trusting in his hands? This is what Paul is going to lay out. 
as we walk through these texts. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us so that we will not desire thing, evil things as they did. Paul is saying, after all that they saw, their heart was still steered to follow an evil and wicked practices. I want you to understand, family, all of our lives will be an example. It will be as we live out this Christian faith or if we deny Christ, our lives will be a testament whether we were faithful to a faithful God or we were unfaithful despite his faithfulness. Paul says you got a narrative of the Old Testament. You got a narrative of what that looks like and what they did, what they pursued. God, who came to them, cared for them, walked with them, yet they still denied him. They were turned away by evil things, and we got this example of what we shouldn't do. But the problem is we still do it. We still often get distracted. We still turn to other things because we think these things will satisfy us. We pursue the ways of this world through money, sex, power, through all these means, yet they don't satisfy us. Paul in verse 7 says, don't do this. Don't be like them. Don't become idlers as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now, if you're not as familiar with the Bible yet, this was a direct quote from what happened in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 through 6, we see Moses has delivered, God has delivered his people through Moses, and Moses has went up the Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And he is in the presence of God, dwelling with God, hearing a message from God, but because he was gone too long, look what happened in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 32 of Exodus. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened, what has happened to him. You, you hear that? We followed this man out here. We've seen God's hands with him, yet because he ain't around right now, I, I I guess Moses ain't good no more. Now, come make some gods that we can control, that we can say, we can look at, we can put our hands on. Give us gods of our own creation. And Aaron foolishly said, okay. He just said, okay. He he said, "Give give me your gold. Give me the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off all the gold rings. They were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from them, fashioned them with an engraved tool, and made it into an image of a calf. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I want you to think about this. Moses slowly and meticulously created a God. 
Like, like this was a, like some slow carving. He literally had to say, give me your most valuable things, and I'm going to chisel it out. He took tools, and he started to kind of craft it and build it and fashion. He engraved it, and he made it look like something they were familiar with. See, in Egypt, the, there was a bull that was the god of war. He was like, well, we don't worship Egyptian gods, but, you know, maybe this cute little calf. I'll make a cute little calf that says, well, here's our god of war. How foolish is that? Moses, I mean, Aaron, not Moses, Aaron meticulously created a God that he could make with his own hands. But Israel forgot about the God who meticulously created them and made them with his own hands. The invisible God who has all power in his hands, they forgot about him for a knockoff, a cheap knockoff. This is what Paul is warning the, Corinth, the church of Corinth about. And this is the same warning we should all heed. Because here's the thing. We think we won't fall to that same trap, but we are quick to do it. Whenever God doesn't do what we want him to do, we say, well, maybe if I just make an image of God in my likeness the way I want him to work, maybe if I just find the right job that'll pay the bills the way I want my bills paid, then I can say, well, look at God working through this job that I just created in my own hands. Maybe as I wrestle with my singleness, let me say, I'm going to take my sexuality in my own hands and say, well, look what I can do, and just tag God's name on it. This is, the, this is what Paul is warning this church about, and this is a warning we should all heed. Whenever we take our eyes off of God and we forget how he has personally touched our lives all throughout our walking with him, we are quick to create other gods and try to tag his name on it. When he doesn't answer prayers in the way we want him answered, we say, well, I'm going to go do this other thing, and I'm going to say, well, bless it, Lord. Just, just tag the blessing of God on it. What does it look like to just trust God and pursue God and look to him for all the glory and let him lay out how it all works out? We have an example of the Israelites not knowing how to do this. They not only built this, this, this God from the goal, but they then built an altar in front of it. And then they made this public declaration. This will be the festival to the Lord tomorrow. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. And they got up and they sang and they offered burnt offerings. They presented fellowship offerings. They did all these things to a God they felt they could control. And that was one of the reasons they were struck down and stuck in the desert because they turned away from the God they could trust and they tried to fashion gods of their own making. And he said, I'm warning you, don't do this. Don't offer yourself up to these gods. And he goes on and says, as you think about these gods that you can make all these offerings up to, he says, let's not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 20, 23,000 people died. This is also one of the scenes from the Old Testament during the wilderness narrative. In the book of Numbers, 
Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 through 5. It says, while Israel was staying in Achaia Grove, Achaia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. And the women invited them to sacrifice for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshiped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with the Baal of Pear. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. He's saying, our idolatry, when we're unwilling to take matters out of our own hand, leads us to heinous practices that can literally lead us to worship other gods because we're following after someone else. Put that in layman's terms. When we are so committed to what the world tells us we should commit ourselves to, we'll end up doing some things that the world says is fine. We, if we're so committed to getting ahead in our jobs, we are willing to go and cheat and lie in our jobs and commit murder basically in our hearts towards people. When we're so committed to these relationships that America says you're not a human unless you have these relationships, we go and try to make relationships in any means we can have, whether it's a one-night stand, whether it's watching porn, whether it's just doing anything to feel satisfied, a moment of gratification so that we could be fulfilled. He was like, that leads to death, family. That leads to death. Let us not test Christ. Going back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. They were destroyed by snakes. Family, when we try to take control of our lives and find gratification in the things that we think are going to satisfy and fulfill us, it can lead us to death. And don't grumble as some of them did. And were killed by the destroyer, verse 10. So we have people either taking control of their own life and trying to find gratification in all the things they can find gratification in, or they're upset because God's not moving as fast as they want him to, so they start complaining to God and say, you don't care for me. So now they're calling out the very character of God. These are the two pitfalls our idolatrous heart often lead us to. Because some of us say, well, I'm not doing these things. I'm not, I'm not cheating anybody. I'm not doing these things. But are you upset with God because he's not moving in your timing? Have you become so angry with God that you hate him at times in your heart? Oh, it's so easy for us to say, well, I would never do that. But what happens when God disappoints you? What happens when things don't pan out the way you hope they pan out? Let me say this. A few weeks ago when I got that call about this this whole church adoption situation, I was upset. And I was quick to say, God, I'm upset. But God started hitting me in the chest saying, come to me then. Come to me. But don't grumble. Be honest about it. Because, see, what we do is we try to cover up with Christian language like, well, you know, bless God that everything didn't work out the way I thought, but you know what you know what's better. No, no, no. Sometimes you just got to be honest with God. Because if you're not honest with God, you'll find yourself grumbling, thinking you're talking behind God. Thinking you are uh, avoiding God. But he knows our hearts. He knows 
He knows us intimately. He knows us fully, just as Aaron intimately created these idols. He knows us even better. So God's like, come to me honestly. Come to me wholly. You know, you might think we don't have an idolatry issue because we don't have these false gods. We don't have statues in our household. But the great theologian Dwight Moody said it best. He says, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America's full of them. Whatever you love more than God, that's your idol. Whatever you put your trust in more than the Father who has taken care of you since the very beginning, there's your idol. Wherever you find satisfaction, and when it's taken away from you, you're upset towards God, but you don't want to talk to God, he has just crushed one of your idols. And he did it to try to get your attention. Oh, family, I pray today that he would get your attention, and you would know that these idols are leading you to self-destruction, and you would come to him honestly. You would come to him with your hands up saying, God, this hurts, help me. Paul goes on in verse 11 said, these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our instructions on whom the end of the age has come. He's saying, you can look back at their story and you can find a glimpse of your own story. How you have followed away often after idols. Have you have put your trust in many other things? He said, these are examples for what you shouldn't do because we know what is coming. The end of the age. We will be those who will see God's glory face to face. And also, because we are those who can, will see God's glory face to face, he also goes on, he says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall, meaning don't be arrogant enough to think you can't be tempted to walk away from God. Don't be arrogant enough to think because you say, well, I'm pursuing God, I can never get tempted. No, 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 no. When you pursue God, trust me, distractions come. We have an enemy who truly wants us to turn our eyes away from our loving Savior so that we would be distracted. Don't be arrogant enough to think you can't fall. And we see it all throughout the Bible. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. The Israelites, Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, we had a tempter telling them turn away from God and trust in themselves. We had Cain and Abel who were trying to figure out what Cain wanted to be seen as great in the eyes of God instead of trusting this holy God who loved him. We had the brothers of Joseph who couldn't stand him, threw him into, threw him into slavery because they wanted to be seen as great and their brother was seen as greater than them. And all throughout the Bible, we see these people who saw God's hands, heard God's voice, yet temptation came and they walked away. Don't think you can't fall. Don't think you can't be tempted. You can't be distracted. But here's some good news for you. 
It's not you who holds on to God, but it's God who is faithful. He will allow you to see, experience these temptations, but he also will keep you in these temptations if you will hold on to him. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but that with temptation he will always also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Family, we should faithfully pursue God, not because it's all on us, but because he is faithful. Not because you must show that you are strong enough or you are good enough, but because he is faithful and he is worthy of our full pursuit. Again, if I were to ask you to look over your life, how do you see God's hand helping you pursue him as you live out this Christian walk? Now, here's the beauty. He doesn't put us in a situation where we have to fight idolatry by ourselves. but look at verses 14 through 22 with us. And this is where the communal aspects of the faith plays in. It says, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I am saying. And then he moves to the communion table. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? What he's saying here is, family, there's always been one God who is faithful to his one people, and he is always the one that we eat with, and we eat with one another. See, when they used to bring the sacrifice to the temple, it was the priest who made a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. But according to, Paul, according to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Meaning no longer do we have this priest that we have to go to, but now we are all priests, which means we are all coming to the communion table and we hold all of each other accountable when we come forward. See, there's a communal aspect of how our faith is played out. This communion table is us personally saying, I believe I am right before God, but also us affirming one another saying, yes, you are right and holy before God and you can come to the communion table because you're not lying in the face of God. The communion table is accountability. The church is where this accountability comes and plays out. So not only when we come to the communion table are we partaking of this piece of bread ourselves, but we are joining in hand saying, no, we take together. We are one. But because we are one, that means if we see someone who lives out of the lines, out of the bounds of who Christ has called us to be, we are also held accountable to hold each other accountable and say, whoa, 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 you're not in good standing right now. This table isn't for you. This is why we do this every week, every time we take communion. Every time we take communion, we fence the table. We say, at this moment, if you first our believer, it's for you. But if you have an ought with your brother and sisters, we ask that you hold off from this table because we don't want you lying before a holy God and before his church. 
See, this is the accountability saying when we come to the communion table together, we are in one accord. We are worshiping one God together. But this also means that God has given the communal table and the community of the saints to hold one another accountable so that we can all die to our idols together and help each other die to our idols and hold each other accountable when we know that they are, we are looking to other means for satisfaction outside of God. And this is why he says one body is one bread. The people of Israel, they ate as one. But when they ate as one, when one in the camp was living in sin, it affected the whole. If you go back to Numbers, uh, there's a story about a man who uh, uh, stole some of the, uh, 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 not Numbers, Judges. It's not in my notes. In Judges, there's a man who stole a portion of the spoils after they had just conquered a nation. God said, don't touch it. But this man went behind the back of Israel and take, took the portion and held it in his tent. And at that moment, God's blessed hands were taken off of Israel. Why? Because he says, y'all are one. Y'all hold each other accountable. So if one of you are sinning, one of you are living in a way that, that goes against my character, it affects all of you. And what did Israel have to do? They cast lots. They said, Lord, who is it? And that one was brought out. And that one was judged. This is how holy God is and how serious he takes his people being on one faith holding each other accountable. Sin has to be destroyed. Sin has to be dealt with. Now, praise God, we don't die for each other's sin. We have a, a one who has already died for each other's sins, but we help each other become more glorified as we boast each other on and call each other to die, to kill our idols, kill those things that keep us bound in sin. And this is why he says, because... What I am saying then, the food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that when what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So what is he saying here? If you know you are living contrary to God's commandments, who God has called you to be, if you are sinning before a holy God, you cannot come to the communion table as though everything is okay. Because now you are eating of the, of the cup of demons and you're eating of the cup of the idol, I mean of the Lord. But also, if you know your brother and sister is living any way that is contrary to this holy God, you are called to hold each other accountable. Because the communion table is for both of you. It's not an individual meal. It's a family meal. And if you love your family, you hold your family accountable. So, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Verse 22. Are we stronger than him? Now, when he says God's jealousy, he's not talking about God is envy, envious as we are envious. 
No, this is not mere envy. This is the, that characterizes human jealousy. It is God's righteousness concerns to protect the truth that he is the creator of all things. And he alone deserves our praise and devotion, not some idols that we are created by our own hands. Meaning he is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped, not the things that we can create, not the things that we can tr- control. That's why idols are useless. Because the same hands that make the idols are the same ones that could throw them in the fire. But yet, God is the only one we can never control because he is holy. But that is what makes him the only one that we can always trust in. So we see how this plays out in our personal life. We are to pursue this holy God, remembering all that he has done for us. When we come to the communion table, how we are to hold one another accountable in this faith. But lastly, we see how this plays out in the mission of God's kingdom, the missional aspects of our faith. Verse 23 through verse 1, and I'm coming to a close, it says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. This is a, 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 a call back to chapter, uh, chapter 6 when it talks about living for God's glory. When, it call, I mean, when we were called to live for God's glory. He said, yeah, you could do a lot of things, but not all these things are helpful. All these things are permissible. All these things build up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other people. See how this is playing out? Your personal faith is for your good, and your communal faith is for your good and the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but now the missional aspects of your faith is for other people who don't know your God yet. It says, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising question for the sake of the conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. This is saying, we can enjoy this world. We can enjoy this life. We can enjoy good jobs. We can enjoy good drinks. We can enjoy good meals because it all belongs to God. But whenever it turns to now, we live for the enjoyment, we are in the wrong place. So if we, if any unbeliever invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you. Enjoy the bountiful things that the Lord has blessed before you without raising good questions for the sake of conscience. But then this caveat, but if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of the conscience. In our world, this would play out like this. If someone tells you that they struggle with alcohol, you probably shouldn't drink alcohol alcohol in front of them. Not saying that alcohol is an evil, wicked thing, but use wisdom. We want to show them that we care for them. So you're not going to drink alcohol because you don't want to tempt someone, whether they're brother or not. You want to do all things for their sake. You want to care for them. You want to love them. You want to live such a, life, such a way that shows that I honor you as an image bearer before God. It's like uh, this past, while we was in New York, uh, we got in a car with a man named Muhammad. Uh, brother from Pakistan, and uh, one of the pastors in the car with us started kind of challenging him on, 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 on Islam and the Quran. But the way he did it, he never talked bad about Muhammad. 
He never talked bad about Allah. The whole thing was, I just want you to question, do you know that your belief has faults? It has problems. And he just kept pushing in on the issues of the Quran. But he did it in such an honorable way for the sake of not losing the person, but loving the person and saying, I honor you, I dignify you, I can disagree with you, but I want you to know the Savior that I know. It was beautiful because at the end, they actually exchanged emails. And so let's pass some resources back and forth. Let's continue this conversation. This right here was doing everything for the sake of the other. Now, what would it look like if we had gotten a car and as soon as we saw the man's name was Muhammad, we said, I'm going to grab a pork chop sandwich. I'm going to talk as bad about Islam as possible, say how foolish Muhammad. What would it have looked like if we had did that? It would have severed the relationship right there on the spot. He's like, I don't, I don't mean you do this for your own conscience, but for others, for the other person. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? Paul is asking this question rhetorical. He says, if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? He gives us the answer of why we should do all these things. Why we should think about our personal faith. Why we should live, think about our communal faith. Why we should think about our missional faith. And it all in, ends here. So whatever you, whether you drink or eat, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. It's all for God's glory. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Family, we do all these things. We take all this into consideration. We wrestle with our faith. We live it in such a way because we want to glorify God at the end of the day. And Paul gives this charge to the church. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now, that would, that would sound like Paul got it all together. Maybe Paul knows what he's doing. He's got it perfectly hammered out. Praise God, we got other parts of the New Testament where Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already reached the goal or already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus, showing I do this not because I have it all together, but because I know the one who has it all together. I take hold of every opportunity to glorify God because I know the one who has all glory. And he holds me. How does he hold us, brothers and sisters? He holds us by first. He lived for us. He died for us. He saved us. And one day he will return us to glory in him. That's the wonderful Donnie McClurkin saying. He says, living, he loved us. Dying, he saved us. Carried, he buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, he freed me forever. And one day, he's coming back, oh, glorious day. Family, because we know that one day he is coming back and we will experience his fullness of glory and everything we do now, we should pursue his glory. Because the rat race of this world will leave us empty and longing. 
But if we run after him as Paul has laid out and laid everything down for him, not only do we get to partake of a piece of his glory here, but we get to bring others in also. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I just want to live my life and I want to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to continue to run my rat race because I know I'm going to achieve the goal of finding satisfaction in my own means. Let me tell you, you're going to be left angry, upset, like a bunch of New Yorkers. (laughs) You're going to be left unsatisfied. But there's one who promises that he will give us this glory. He will allow us to partake of his glory, and he invites you, come and take of my glory today. Will you come and take of his glory today? If you already know the Savior who, will offer you, who has offered and given us his glory, family, I tell you to do all these things in consideration of the glorious one that we one day will fully experience face to face. Will you pursue his glory today? Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray today that we thirst and hunger and run after your glory and we find full satisfaction in you. I pray today that we would throw our idols at your feet, that we would die to ourselves, die to all those things that we lie to ourselves about. They will give us satisfaction, and we would find our true and full satisfaction in you. I pray today that those who may not know you, that you would draw them to yourself and show them how glorious you are, how perfect you are, and how worthy you are of worship. And as we prepare to worship you in song and in giving in all that we do today, help us to have the mind that we are pursuing your glory at all costs, casting off the weights of this world and turning our eyes faithfully and wholly towards you. So Lord, be with us. Be with us this morning and have your way in us. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand and continue to sing with us?